Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark. Today, looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. And now, here's Carrie. Good morning. I know everybody's hungry, so I won't keep you past supper time. (laughs) D.L. Moody said, The Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our hearts. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we begin today by giving you thanks. We thank you for your wonderful love, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your holy word. As we study your gospel, we pray that we would hear your voice. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work opening our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word. And may our eyes be opened to seeing you as our loving Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our eyes can play tricks on us. Sometimes we can't see what's in plain sight. We can't see our glasses on top of our head or the car keys on the table. There are times when we can only see what we want to see. We see the lights and excitement of Las Vegas, but we don't see the exploitation, the addiction, and the poverty behind the lights. There are times when things are camouflaged, so we can't see them even when we're looking directly at them. Mark plays with the idea of sight in his gospel. He supports Jesus' prediction of his arrest, his torture, and execution with the story of a blind man receiving his sight. The blind man can see, but the disciples can't see. Two questions we might want to ask to consider as we read Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 52 are what enables us to see and what prevents us from seeing. Reading Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 34 from the New International Version. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus, his disciples, and a crowd of followers are on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Nothing seems unusual about this scene. Jesus often walks ahead of the crowd, and he has already committed himself to go to Jerusalem. So what then causes Mark to report so vividly the disciples were astonished And those who followed were afraid. Those following Jesus 
must have felt the weight of impending doom by something in the demeanor of Jesus. On the road to Jerusalem and towards the cross, Jesus walks ahead and alone in the position of a changed leader. Nothing can turn his head from his purpose. Whatever Jesus communicates from the head of the procession, two emotions sweep over the company. The disciples are astonished and the crowds are filled with fear. Out in front of the fearful crowd, Jesus finds strength and determination to do the will of God. Jesus knows the consequences that are ahead of him. And sensing the emotions that he has created on his approach to Jerusalem, he takes the disciples aside and he reveals to them the reason for his awesome determination. For the third time, he reveals his passion. At Jerusalem, he will be betrayed, condemned by the Sanhedrin, transferred to a Roman court, subject to mocking, spitting, and scourging, crucified, and resurrected on the third day. In the book of Luke, in chapter 18, verse 34, Luke writes, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Jesus' Messiah, the suffering servant, is different than the Messiah that the disciples envisioned. They don't want a suffering servant, or what they believe would be a weak Messiah. They want a Messiah who is a political force, able to set up God's kingdom on earth. Which Jesus do we envision? Remember the two questions we were to consider? What enables us to see and what prevents us from seeing? Do we see Jesus who he is, or do we see Jesus who we want him to be? Jesus' prediction was too ugly and revolting for the disciples. They couldn't accept it. They turned away from it. They refused to believe it. And they refused to see it. They were like blind men needing to see. And it wasn't until they met Jesus after the resurrection that their eyes were opened and they could say, I was blind, but now I see. The prediction was to help prepare the disciples in understanding and hope. But by referring to, con- to crucifixion, added both horror and humiliation. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, the law was referenced to one hanged on a tree as accursed. And this was interpreted following the resurrection to say that Jesus was made accursed in the place of of the sinner. Acts 3:15, 4:10, Galatians 3:13 and 2 Corinthians 5:21. But the hope was in his resurrection and our assurance is in his victory. For Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Intellectually, we consent to follow Jesus and take up our cross daily. Emotionally, 
There's a lot of fear mixed with a little wonder that still separate us from him when we consider the consequences. We remember Jesus' command from chapter 8, verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Some are called to sacrifice their lives for Jesus and the gospel. And as legend has it, many of the twelve disciples were martyred. We are to accept that martyrdom is a possibility, but we are not to seek it out. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. In Matthew 24:16, Jesus says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Eusebius says this about the Romans destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The legions of Rome brought the captives to Caesarea. And after over one million Jews were killed, 95,000 captives were taken as prisoners. The Christians saw the might of the Roman army and through prophetic warning fled to the mountains and then to Pella. They remembered Jesus' words. And when they saw the Romans coming, it was time to run, get out, and stay alive. And this is what the believers did. They fled. They lived. In contrast, the unbelievers, those who did not heed Jesus' words, put their faith in the walls of Jerusalem, and they were slaughtered. But we can also lose our souls by trying to save them. The Bible is clear that salvation is through grace, by faith. We are completely incapable of doing the work that would save our souls. To try this is to reject Jesus' offer of salvation, and without Jesus, our souls are forfeit. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9, and John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Somehow, at the nature, at the heart of the nature of God, a costly sacrifice is required that life might come. Jesus' death was necessary, but it had a unique purpose, unlike your death or mine. He had to die that you and I might conquer death and live. We may not fully understand the atonement, but perhaps it's enough to know that God himself willingly gave his life through his son, Jesus. And because of that voluntary death, you and I have access to abundant and eternal life. Reading verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, 
and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But the sin at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So once again, what enables us to see and what prevents us from seeing? Each of the three passion prophecies is followed by an inappropriate rebuke or request from one of the three disciples of Jesus' inner circle. Peter took it upon himself to rebuke Jesus after the first announcement of the Son of Man's forthcoming suffering. John assumed the role of spokesperson following the second prediction. When he directly contested with Jesus about an exorcist who cast out demons in Jesus' name but did not belong to the twelve. James and John come together to make a personal request following a third and final passion prophecy. Such a request is presumptuous in any circumstance, but Jesus is willing to listen. James and John want nothing less than the right and left hand next to Christ's throne when he reigns in glory. Matthew in his gospel tells us that Salome, the mother, also comes with her sons and actually speaks for them. Jesus' acceptance of women in his company as disciples is evidenced in his acceptance of her words of request as openly as of the men's. A lust for greatness lurks behind the request of James and John. The same lust shows through Peter's rebuke and John's rebuttal. Each wants to protect his legacy of power and position in an earthly kingdom. In doing so, each exposes his lust for greatness. Jesus has a right to be impatient and angry with them, but instead, he chooses to teach them the meaning of true greatness by comparing the human standards of rank and power with his standard of servanthood. Word leaks out that James and John are conspiring for the top positions in the coming kingdom. So a power struggle threatens to destroy all the work that Jesus has done to weld the twelve into a unified working body. He calls the twelve together and he talks about the standards of power which the Gentiles use to determine greatness. Jesus reminds them of the Roman rulers who used their power to lord it over them. And the disciples realize that they have fallen victim to the same corrupting power that they suffered from the Romans, and they want none of it. Jesus is in the business of upsetting all the accepted standards of the world. 
He establishes servanthood as his standard of greatness. By rank, a servant is last of all. In power, a servant has none. Greatness is not to be sought. If it comes, it comes through giving. Ultimate good rules the servanthood of Jesus. Without rank and without power, he gives up his life as a ransom for many. Greatness is ours if we follow the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Reading verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The healing of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, is significant because it is the final healing that Mark reports, and it's an, interu- it's an interruption into the event of Jesus' passion. Passover is approaching, and the road is jammed with pilgrims chanting on the way to the holy city. Alongside the road is another crowd, parade watchers, curiosity seekers, and those who are too poor, sinful, diseased, or handicapped to make the journey to Jerusalem. Someone has told Bartimaeus, the blind man, beggar, and public nuisance, that Jesus was passing by. The blind man sees something that no one else has seen, and he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. For the first time, Jesus is publicly called the Son of David. Jews in Jerusalem claim David as their father and his son as their Messiah. The prophetic salute of Bartimaeus stops Jesus in his tracks. Jesus' healing ministry is behind him as he focuses all of his energy on his oncoming suffering. Nothing can deter or interrupt him except a needy man crying for mercy. Stopping the procession and calling the pitiful creature to come to him while on the way to Jerusalem is proof enough that Jesus the servant and Jesus the Savior are one and the same. If ever a person demonstrates a show of faith, Bartimaeus does. He answers the call from Jesus. All of his life, this blind beggar has counted on others to lead him 
and to feed him. Although still blind, Bartimaeus walks out on his own. What a sight it must have been to have seen the crowd open a path for Bartimaeus as he comes to Jesus. Jesus meets the fate of Bartimaeus with the same question that he asked James and John in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? The difference between Bartimaeus' answer and the disciples' request is the difference between faith and ambition. Faith asks for needs. Ambition begs for wants. Bartimaeus needs his sight. James and John wanted places of honor in the coming kingdom of God. Though Bartimaeus is blind, he sees who Jesus is. Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, referring to the Messiah, the one who was to restore God's kingdom. Bartimaeus sees the kingdom of God as a place of mercy rather than a place of greatness and power. Jesus was unwilling to respond to the disciples' wants, but he wastes no time in meeting Bartimaeus' needs. Verse 52, Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. This not only gives instant insight to a blind man, instant sight to a blind man, but recognizes the total healing of a person with a ready faith. Bartimaeus asked Jesus for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. The Greek word used for mercy is most often eleos, which means pity or compassion. And for grace is cherish, which means favor. Mercy and grace are two sides of a coin. And that coin is love. We all need God's mercy and his grace. Mercy takes us to the path of forgiveness, while grace leads us to reconciliation. Mark reinforces the total healing of Bartimaeus by bringing the story full circle in the conclusion, verse 52. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. A beggar who was once blind becomes a disciple and a pilgrim, living, seeing, walking, and singing proof that Jesus is servant and Savior. Like Bartimaeus, we might want to approach God and ask God to make us see. We need to see with the eyes of Jesus so that we can be open to God's leading and aware of God's movement in our lives. The Bible is constantly clear throughout the New Testament. Christians are not defined by what they believe, rather who they follow. The word Christian is used three times in the Bible. Acts 11, verse 26. Acts 26, 28. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. In each instant, the Greek word Christianos is used, which is defined biblically as a follower of Christ. Before followers of Christ were called Christians, they were called those who belonged to the way. We serve a God that literally became helpless in pursuit of us. A God that willingly went to the cross to make a way for us 
to get back to him. We serve a God that went through hell on our behalf. And if we are to follow Jesus, the first thing we should do is to go where he went. So where did Jesus go? Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus is most commonly found in one of three places. Alone, often praying and resting. With his closest friends, community. With those opposed and forgotten, the sick, sinners, and culturally insignificant people. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and we have to go to the people that he went to. That's what following Jesus means. When Jesus was with people, he gave them what they needed. Not always what they wanted, but what they ultimately needed. He sat with the sick. He talked to the ignored. He challenged the proud. He helped the poor. He gave purpose to the hopeless. He comforted the distraught. He showed love to everyone he came in contact with. Like Jesus, we should be defending those who cannot defend themselves. We should stand up for those that are facing unfair treatment. We should be friends and advocates of those being opposed. And in so, in so, so doing, we can point them to our Savior. Following Jesus means we stand up for those whom Jesus stood up for. Jesus was genuinely, genuinely moved by the people that he encountered. He showed his emotions. He empathized. That's one of the things that attracted people to Jesus. He actually cared about them and what they were going through. We should be motivated by our heart towards people. We should not see people as projects to be one. They are children of God to be loved. And that's what we should do. Following Jesus means we embody the love that he had for all people. In his beautiful book, I Shall Not Want, Robert Ketchum tells of a Sunday school teacher who asked her group of children if anyone could quote the entire 23rd Psalm. A golden-haired, four-and-a-half-year-old girl was among those who raised their hands. A bit skeptical, the teacher asked if she could really quote the entire Psalm. The little girl came to the front of the room. She faced the class, made a perky little bow, and said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. She bowed again and went and sat down. That may be the greatest interpretation of the 23rd Psalm ever heard. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Father God, we're grateful for the time this morning, albeit short, that we could spend together just learning more about you and praising you. And uh, although we may not be physically blind, I'm sure there's things that we don't see quite as clearly. And as we leave this building, just reveal yourself to us day by day. 
until we meet again, or you call us home. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.